it is possible that this Christmas you will get a gift and you will look at it and look at them and say, you shouldn't have. <laughs> and you'll mean it. Because <laughs> Ralphie, in that moment, from that immortal film, it missed in every way imaginable. Missed his size, missed his sex, missed his style. Total, a total miss in every form and fashion. It was, here's a word, unbefitting. Uh, there's a new word I have learned in the last six months. I've heard people throw it around like, what are they talking about? I had to look it up. And it's this word. It's the word bespoke. It's actually an ancient word, but it's got like new, new wrinkles to it now. But bespoke means finely tuned, tailored, accommodating, befitting. And usually it is used in the reference to these new corporations that are online now called like bespoke gifts. Bespoke by Anne. No, no, no connection. People come up with gifts that are finely catered to, accommodating, finely tuned and tailored to the recipient of the gift. And they call them bespoke. It's either unbefitting, like what Ralphie got, or bespoke. Why am I bringing this up? For the month of November, we are reminding ourselves that November, while it does confine itself usually to thinking about gratitude on one day a month for one day a year, we kind of would like to broaden our perspective to think that gratitude fits in every moment. And we're going to talk about gratitude for the whole month. And where we're focusing our attention about gratitude for the whole month of November is gratitude for the gifts of the Spirit to the church. And our argument this morning, as we continue in Paul's argument that he's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is that God gives bespoke gifts. He has thought about who the recipients will be, what it will be for, when is it, to imagine what are the gifts that are finely tuned and tailored. And we want to consider those bespoke gifts of God in three senses that I think we're going to find in the next seven verses of his argument in 1 Corinthians 12. God gives bespoke gifts in three senses. To the trustees of those gifts. Don't worry, we'll unpack what we meant by that. To the target of the gifts. I needed a T word. You'll understand. And then finally, bespoke to the times. Bespoke to the trustees. Bespoke to the target. Bespoke to the times. I am opening a can of worms this morning, my friends, and I don't think I'll be able to put them all back in, but I think it will start a good conversation for those of you that are new to it. So I welcome you to it. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I wonder if you could stand so we can focus our attention and we'll go that road. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith. By the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, 
to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may have a seat. He gives bespoke gifts, first of all, to the trustees. That's where I'm starting. These gifts, whatever they might be, you heard their nature, their function, their purpose, but the key word you hear there at the very first part of the passage is one word you hear three times, and it's the word variety. One spirit, a variety of gifts, a variety of service, a variety of activity. And so you heard there in rapid fashion, you sort of firepower, a litany of different ideas. You heard gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, all the way down. That's a variety. And if you have heard Paul speak of spiritual gifts in other letters that he's written, in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, when his buddy Peter talks about gifts in 1 Peter 4, you know that the lists that they rattle off are not identical to the one that he just did. There's variety even across lists, which is to suggest to us that what you just heard is not exhaustive. And what if you were to catalog all the gifts that, that Peter or Paul might mention, Mary was not mentioned. <clears throat> hey, over here. Oh, wait. She speaks of other gifts. It's not an exhaustive list. So, you know, maybe the things that we might think about here do not fit in one of those categories, even though they might have overlap with those categories. There are a variety of gifts, but they're also specified. Uh, it's not like God has a, a, a pinata, and the pinata's full of gifts, and he smacks the pinata open, and then everybody got to run, grab your gift. It's not like that. These gifts are given to each, to other, to another, to each individually. It's not one gift. It's many gifts, but they're given. And so as he's talking about that, we got to pause here a little bit about the nature of these gifts. I've already alluded to it. He says there's a variety, and we'll get to the significance of mentioning that it's a variety in just a moment. But when he says there's a variety of gifts, a variety of service, and a variety of activities, that all has meaning, and it goes by so fast you can miss it. When we say it's a variety of gifts, like I just said, they're given. You didn't choose them. When you are reborn in him, you are given them. You are given whatever it might be. You didn't find it. You didn't cultivate it yourself. You didn't choose it. It's just given. That's a variety of gifts. But this gift, he also calls it a variety of services. The word there is diakonos. It's from where we get diakonon and diakonon. It's where we get our words for, for deacon and deaconess. It's the idea that these gifts serve. You might derive some delight in the expression of them, but they're not primarily for that. They're primarily not to impress they're not to make you feel good about yourself. They're there to serve. Who are they to serve? We'll get to that in the second point. 
A variety of gifts that are given. You didn't find it. You didn't choose it. A variety of services. They're not mainly for your own sake. They're mainly for another sake. That's why they call them services. But they're also a variety of activities. Hmm? The, the original language there, it's a little clunky. You gotta, you gotta, if you're a translator in English, you've got to pick something. And activities is that thing. And what we mean here is that by activities, they are given by the Spirit. They are also energized by the Spirit. And they're made effective by the Spirit. These gifts do serve a spiritual purpose. And they do overlap with certain aptitudes and affinities and abilities that exist within you, which is a hint onto the nature of the gifts that you've been given. But to say it's the spirit that makes them effective, it, look, when you were young, people started to notice in you, oh, wow, they are so good at X, Y, Z, whatever it might have been. And, and those things hint in terms of affinity and ability. We'll get to that later in the sermon. Those things hint about what God might seek to give you and to cultivate in you to use for his purposes. But the skill alone is inadequate to its purpose. To say there's a variety of services is saying no matter how much overlap your natural affinity or aptitude might resemble, unless the spirit empowers it, it's just a skill. There are varieties of gifts, of services, of activities that correspond in some ways with your natural aptitudes, but they're not identical with it. They require the Spirit to work within them in order for them to be, in fact, spiritual gifts. So the significance of mentioning it at this point in the sermon, okay, great, there's a variety of gifts. Bespoke to the trustees is this. These gifts prove to us one thing if you're a recipient of them in the church is that you exist interdependently of one another. Nobody has all the gifts. You weren't meant to. You have been given something. You have not been given everything. And for you, for your sake, for the sake of who we'll get to in a moment, you need each other. You have limitations. You are not omnicompetent. You have a slice. You have a sliver. You have a thing, but you don't have everything, which makes you humble, and it ought to. These gifts prove to us that we are interdependent on one another for their purpose to be seen and flourish in and through us. But when I use the word trustee, it's also for a purpose. When I say it's bespoke to the trustees, what's a trustee? Somebody's a trustee is who's been endowed and entrusted with something that is not primarily their possession. It's within their purview, but it's not mainly or primarily for them. It's for someone else, for some other good. That's why I'm calling you a trustee. It's not about you. You know, there's that moment in Doctor Strange where he's got all these skills and, you know, he meets uh, uh, Tilda Swinton without hair and, uh, you know, he's kind of wondering why have I learned all of this and why do I have this stuff? And she kind of pulls him aside and she goes, honey, honey, it's not about you. It's bespoke to trustees. That's how you have to conceive of the variety of gifts that are given to each one, which then makes a shift then to bring us to the next question then, if it's bespoke to the trustees, what is the target of these gifts? Again, I needed a T word. It's not the best word. It's the one I picked. Bespoke to the target. 
Who is this for? Verse 7. Do I have that? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Manifestation means it is public, it is noticed, it is visible. It's not hidden. It is brought to light. And who is it for? For the common good, which is shorthand for Paul saying, your gifts given to you in its variety by the same Spirit is given for the building up, the maturing of the church. That's the target. That's who they're for. You derive delight and satisfaction, no doubt, at times, at times. But that's not really why he mainly gave it to you. The Spirit has been giving gifts from time immemorial to the church, for the church, that it might build up the church. Because I, why do I need to say that? Because as soon as I start to talk about gifts and aptitudes and abilities in a Western individualistic culture, what, what, what is the, the danger that we run into in thinking like that? That it is once again all about you. Last week, if you weren't here, we, we, we put up several minutes of a, a wonderful film from 40 years ago, um, Peter Weir's Amadeus, and we talked about Salieri, you know, this amazing operatic court composer who was uh, contemporaneous with uh, Amadeus Mozart. And at the beginning, if you were here last week, you remember he asks the Lord, give me a gift of your glory that I might respond to you with praise, with a gift of music. And we all listen to that and we go, how wonderful. What a great example of what it means to ask for God to give him a gift that he can then reflect to his praise. And then we discover along the way when Salieri meets Mozart and sees a rather irreverent but far more accomplished, brilliant musician, we discover what's really inside Salieri's heart. He asks for a gift from God having nothing to do with his really interest in God and everything for himself. Such that all that he can do is envy Mozart and despise God for having given him what he thinks is mediocre. As soon as I start talking gifts among us, we start comparing with one another. We start choosing whether my gift is good or whether your gift is better or mine is more important. And it becomes, well, a far cry from what he intends. This gift is for the church and our trouble is that you and I, when we think about gifts and aptitudes, we so begin to over-identify with what he has given to us that we make it our, that, that's, we, we matter. We determine whether or not we matter depending on what gift or how effective it is. No. Not if these gifts are bespoke to a particular target, namely the church. L let's, let's unpack that just a little bit more. What does the church need? We learn a lot about what the church needs from the kind of gifts that members of the church receive. Now, I'm going to kind of go these, through these kind of quickly. My, my objective is not to elaborate extensively on each one of them, but listen not so much for the nature of the gift as to what we perceive God believes the church needs on the basis of what gifts he's given. He, he first talks about, Paul first talks about an utterance of wisdom and of knowledge. Utterance, meaning a particular moment, a particular word. It's, it's hard to be dogmatic about what Paul means right here because he doesn't really split it out. You've got to kind of pull other things in from other places in Scripture to figure out what he might mean. When it comes to an utterance of wisdom, what do we believe Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 1? He talks about the gospel being what? The wisdom of God. The Greeks 
The Greeks want, the Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom, but the gospel is the foolishness of God. The foolishness that is wisdom, that shames the, the wisdom of the wise. An utterance of wisdom then is one that might speak an implication of the gospel in a particular moment according to a particular need to help us flesh out how the gospel speaks to our moment. An utterance of knowledge is unlike unto it in that it's speaking even more practically. What kind of guidance might one need in that moment that the Spirit might lay upon the heart of another to then share with that person that they might need it in that given moment? That's an utterance of knowledge. And then Paul kind of shifts over here to the idea of a, a gift of faith. And we might think, wait a minute, um, you mean conversion? And the answer is no. It's not about the gift of being persuaded by the Spirit that Jesus is real, even though that too is a gift. We believe faith is a gift, Ephesians 2. Man, if you can pull up this week, uh, it came out yesterday, it's an essay by Ayan uh, Hersi Ali, who uh, was raised in Ethiopia, um, came out of a radical Islamic background, repudiated all religions at all times, became a very strident atheist for a very long time, and wrote an article yesterday about saying why I'm now a Christian. It's a remarkable essay. And, and, and people, she's getting criticized because she kind of sees the, the political and geopolitical benefits of believing in Jesus, and less so about you know, whether or not the resurrection is true, even though I think she does believe that. This is not, when, when Paul talks about the spiritual gift of faith, it's not what I and her see Ali is speaking of this week. It is instead talking about an impression and intuition of the Spirit that gives one great confidence about what God might be doing in a particular moment, that he might move, he or she might move others to particular act and work of the Lord that is needed in the moment. And some will see the, the gift, the spiritual gift of faith as tied to what comes there in his litany, the gifts of healing, the workings of miracles. And look, we see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in Acts chapter 3 with Peter. We, we hear about that through Paul. Like, the, like he's, he's preaching and, I mean, who does this, right? He Somebody gets tired and falls asleep during the sermon and falls out of the second floor. That's why we have a railing in the balcony. Um, <clears throat> and, and Paul goes to him and, and lays over him and, and the guy, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? Whatever happened in that moment, that, didn't see that coming, not on my bingo card, and there it was. Something happened. Healing, working of miracles, there's that. And then he speaks of the spirit of prophecy. What were the prophets in the Old Testament? It was less so about future telling, though there was part of that. It was more about present telling. What they interpreted God to be doing in that moment and how Israel needed to shape up, wake up, repent, and call them to an understanding of what it meant to be his. It's a prophetic word to be able to have an insight into the nature of God and the nature of his truth and what he's doing and how we all might need to respond in a particular moment. That's a prophetic word. But God knows fully well that you and I are fallible. Whatever I might say, you are called upon to help sense it. The elders of this church are supposed to listen to what I'm saying, and if at any point they sense, um, you know, you're kind of off the rails, they need to confront me about that. Because at the same time that God gives the spiritual gifts of prophecy, it also says God gives the spiritual gifts of discerning the spirits. This morning, Dave Bachmiller read in our, in our prayer time about what John says in 1 John 4. Test the spirits. Not every spirit, not every 
intuition of what the Spirit is saying to the church in a given moment ought to be taken at face value. It has to be sensed. It has to be worked through the grid of what God has also revealed in other places. The Lord knows that the people need a prophetic word, but they also need somebody to go, "Mm, that seems a little off. Because we are fallible. And then when we get to the whole part about tongues, what Paul is talking about there, everybody, Katie barred the door, in Acts chapter 2, it's clearly that those tongues represent foreign languages. They never did the Duolingo, and yet they start talking. I got that. Um, <clears throat> right, okay, Rosetta Stone, how's that better? Yeah, they didn't do that. They just started talking in other languages, and people understood them. That's that. What Paul is talking about is something else. And for those of you that are visiting today going, oh, I've stepped into the wrong place. Maybe, I don't know. What, what were tongues in that moment? When we get to 1 Corinthians 14 after Christmas, Paul's clear. It's not really an evangelistic ex- expression. It's really for those in the life of the body. And what would tongues be to those that spoke of them, these indecipherable words that needed somebody else to interpret them? A sense that God was more than just an idea. That he was real. That he was personal. That he was present. That he was beautiful. And that he knew you. Tongues were not there to impress anybody. Paul says, I would rather speak um, five words that made sense to everybody than 10,000 words in a tongue. It was a sense in which you demonstrated, you felt like you were nearest to him by what was ever being provoked in you by those. That's kind of what tongues are, and that's as far as I'm going to get into that one. But those are the gifts of the Spirit that you see God giving to the people at particular moments and particular times. And at that moment, what do we reveal? What does the church need? It needs to hear from the Lord. It needs help from the Lord to know what it is like, what, what implications the gospel has for your life, for the whole life of the church. It needed someone to kind of step in and go, I think that might be off. I think that might be good. We needed to have confirmed to us that Jesus is risen And that God would give us a hint that he is in fact at work in his people, in the world, in ways no one could have ever imagined both to establish and mature his church. That's what the gifts of the Spirit were for and are for. For the church. Bespoke to the target. That's how they work. That's what they do. What is that about? What do we do for that? There's an interesting moment in Acts chapter 21 where both the church that's around Paul and Paul himself, they both discern by an impression from the Holy Spirit that Paul is bound for suffering. And they both sense the same thing. Well, what does the church around Paul say? Because we sense that suffering is in your future, don't go. Stay here. And Paul says, I can't stay here. We both have the sense that the Lord is at work to communicate to us what's in my future. But it requires deduction about what do I make of that? What do I do? What does it mean? The Holy Spirit's at work there bespoke not only to the trustees, but to the target, and that is the church. And that gets me to kind of the last thing I want to talk about here. Not only is God gives bespoke gifts to the trustees, he also gives bespoke gifts 
to the times. What do I mean by that? It's unequivocal and clear that Paul is describing boots-on-the-ground experiences of the early church. These gifts were given in abundance like it hasn't been given before. Look, Bezalel and Aholiab, that Janelle read with perfection, those names. God, it says, endows them with gifts, artistic gifts, to prepare the temple to be a place of worship that all might walk in with awe and gratitude at the wonders of God and invested them with particular strength and skill to build up the nation of Israel through the expression of their skill. And it was for a time that he invested them with that skill for that time because that time called for it. What do all of these gifts speak of, speak to, or suggest at the time that they were given? The church is at a place where it's just growing, it's just been born, it's out to be established, it's out to make a place where it might convince and persuade others that's going on. But what's at work? You hear Paul describing that. And what do we discover as the time is going along, as we get further and further away from the time of Jesus? The eyewitnesses that were there to see him, those who were known as apostles, sent out to plant churches and tell others and appoint others to positions of leadership and service, they're beginning to die out. And the early church is asking themselves, what do we got to do to ensure that the faith once delivered might go beyond our generation. We've got to take all of the testimonies that we are hearing circulating about the church and find the best words that speak of Jesus that might then be compiled and form what you and I know is the scripture. They had the Hebrew side. They had the Old Testament. What next? And in time, the early church begins to compile what we know is the Bible. Why? To grant us clarity on what it means to be a church. In Acts chapter 15, when they start to hear that maybe God is interested in the Gentiles too, they hear from Peter and what happened with him and Cornelius in Acts chapter 9, and they figure out, gosh, what do we say? Look, we don't mean to put on the Gentiles everything the law of Moses requires. We're not going to say that you have to be circumcised in order to be part of Christ's church. So what do we tell them? And if you read the account in Acts chapter 15, you hear the early church, the elders, and, and the disciples, and the apostles all saying, you know what? It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit and they send a letter to the Gentile churches. We feel like these are the keynotes. Why? They've never done this before. They don't know what to do next. They pray, they compile, they sense, they disseminate. Why? Because it's an all anticipation, all in an anticipation of what it would mean to compile a list of guidance and wisdom and glory for what it would mean to be a follower of Christ and to build his church. And that's what the scriptures become. The argument on one side of this debate goes like this. When Jesus says, I will send my spirit, and that spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I said to you. It is him giving a hint of where this was headed. That there would come a point, early on, the church needed certain spiritual gifts to be at work to help form and establish it and prepare it for its next phase. But that was all in anticipation of a time in which God would primarily work and mainly work the Spirit through the reading, the reflection, the prayer, the discussion, the preaching, the conversation, the counseling of the Word. So one argument goes in that direction is things are headed. 
And therefore, those gifts that were given early on had a time. It was bespoke to the time. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument, what you see there described in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 happens without interruption and without modification. Our friends in more charismatic and Pentecostal traditions see no distinction between the past and the present. The Holy Spirit worked then. What good reason would the Holy Spirit not want to work in the same way now? Therefore, ergo, this is how it works. Those that are outside of those traditions say, the Lord was headed to a place where God would primarily choose to work mainly through the work of the Spirit through the Word. That's where the, the line between those traditions tends to grow. And you heard me last week say, this is where it goes. Like, ooh, like, here's the fights. The good thing about this discussion is that there are people on both sides of this divide that are self-aware. There are some people, I listened to a wonderful interview between Christine Kane and, and Russell Moore this week about the gifts of the Spirit. And Christine Kane represented the place of a more charismatic Pentecostal tradition. And she is self-aware enough to know, look, she's seen some of the excesses and abuses in that way of thinking. The tortilla, I see Jesus' face. What might it mean? Right? There's that. There's that excess. There's that abuse where you're, you're seeing what really isn't there. You just kind of want to see it. And you kind of whip yourself up into a fervor to go, look what God is doing. It's kind of like, no, I think this is you. And then there are people on the other side of that divide, we'll call it within the Reformed tradition just as an example, who are self-aware enough to say, you know, our openness to the Spirit is about as big as, well, I wonder if the Spirit will lead us which coffee to pick today. That open to the Spirit's leadership. Both sides are aware of where you can take an, a greater openness to the way the Spirit which works, and then it's, it, it, it becomes all manner of, of, of folly and abuse. Or you can be so convinced that the Holy Spirit only works in very narrow, narrow channels that actually you expect God to do nothing. Or, or whatever God will do, it'll only be through the flapping of my gums. What do we do with all that? Where do we go with all of this? Um, as usual, we go to J.R.R. Tolkien. <clears throat> I, this is a, a, a wonderful little metaphor for how to think about the spiritual gifts. This is, uh, you know, the fellowship, right? They're out to redeem Middle Earth. They, as a fellowship, they are out to uh, have the ring of power destroyed. But in order to do that, they must be entrusted with certain gifts in order to accomplish their purpose for the good of Middle Earth. And so they go to Rivendell and meet uh, Kate, uh, uh, Kate Blanchett. No, they meet Galadriel. And in this moment, well, you'll see how it happens. My gift for you, Legolas, is a bow of the Galadrim, worthy of the skill of our woodland kin. These are the daggers of Anolnurin. They have already seen service in war. Do not fear, young Peregrine Took. You will find your courage. And for you, Samwise Gamgee, elven rope made of heathline. Thank you, my lady. Everyone out of those nice shiny daggers. Farewell, Frodo Baggins. I give you the light of Erendil. 
our most beloved star. May it be a light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. And what gift would a dwarf ask the elves? Nothing. Except to look upon the lady of the Galadrim one last time. For she is more fair than all the jewels beneath the earth. <laughs> oh. The whole sermon is right there. The gifts are purposed. They are given. They didn't go find their gifts. They were given those gifts. They were entrusted with those gifts. Not so that that gift would hang on a shelf or around their neck, but that they would be used. And there's a natural inclination in us going, uh, nice rope, could I have the deck? Like, hmm, I, I promise. I promise this one is yours and it's for a good purpose. The, the light of Elendil, friends, that's the word. When all other lights go out, where are you going to go? Sometimes you just got to appeal to what the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then what does Gimli reflect? The very kind of spirit that one ought to think of and receive and cultivate and use those gifts, meaning this. If I never use any gift and I just behold the beauty of the giver, that is enough for me. Thank you for what you've given. I hope to use it well, but I am under no illusions that this is greater than you. That's how we think of these spiritual gifts, however they might be. Those gifts are at work in the church to bring wisdom, to bring knowledge, to demonstrate faith, to work healing both physical and mental to do things that we can't explain apart the work of the Lord, to have a sense of communion with him that we can't explain and don't really care if we could, of course those things are at work. Maybe not precisely in the same way, but it's certainly at least in an analogous way. As I've sat with this text and wrestled with this text, I think this text offers us two admonitions to humbly offer and to be humbly open. When I mean humbly offer the gift, it is with this assumption that you've already heard. Anyone who is in Christ has been given a gift by the Spirit to be used for the sake of the church. There's no one that's not, no, sorry, you're, you're not on some addendum list. You didn't get anything. You received something from him for the good of the church. You must humbly offer that. It wasn't yours to begin with, and it's not about you. It's to be offered for the good of the church. Humbly offered, but now humbly offered. If you ever come up to a person of leadership in the church and say, I'm a really good teacher, I would like to teach. I'm a really good leader. I think you should put me in a position of authority. You will understand if we smile and perhaps look away awkwardly. Because I assure you, if the church is functioning as it will, if you're a great teacher, 
then come to a class and learn, and we will notice. If you're a great leader, come to the church and serve, and I assure you, you'll be noticed. Humbly offered. You and I are always at the risk of taking our gift and exploiting it and distorting it into something it was never intended to be. It was never meant to be your salvation. And it was never meant to be defining of you in such a way that you really even don't care if Jesus died for you. I just want to use my gift. Oh, friends. It's an offering, but it's really an offering unto yourself than it is to him. Offered, you've got one, humbly. Let us notice it. Let us nudge you. Let us help you nurture it. Let us put you in positions of opportunity to do that. And that's why I would say there's a wonderful trifecta of things that you might use as your grid from John Newton to understand. How do we think about these gifts? It's this one. Opportunity, ability, and affinity. In Western culture, we usually think of, tell me about your skills and what you like to do. And then we'll go put you in a place of opportunity. In the church, if you might humbly offer your gift, I would suggest this instead. Start with, where is there a place around here that I might serve? What are the opportunities that I see at work here? How might those fit with abilities and affinities that God may have given us? Don't make it about, I need you to help me feel good about myself, so put me in a position of responsibility to do that. Come serve. We must be humbly offering what he's given us, and he's given us one thing. And when I say humbly open, I know where I am, and I know in what tradition I stand. Our more charismatic and Pentecostal friends, of which some of you have that background, I don't need to tell my charismatic and Pentecostal friends, you need to be open to the Spirit's leadership. They're like, well, duh. But to those of us that have not, do not have that background and perhaps are more cautious because we have seen a lot of excesses in that direction, we must also acknowledge that there are excesses in this side of the room too in being totally closed off to what the Spirit might be doing in and through us in ways that we didn't expect and can't manage easily or control. It will operate in an orderly way but we must be humbly open to the ways in which the Spirit might lead that never contradict what we find in the Word, but which are nevertheless an impression. That's why John Murray, he was a theologian of the last century, and while he speaks here primarily of the way in which the Spirit works through the Word, he does say this. As we are the subjects of this illumination and are responsive to it, and as the Holy Spirit is operative in us to the doing of God's will, we shall have feelings, impressions, convictions, urges, inhibitions, impulses, burdens, resolutions, illumination and direction by the Spirit through the Word will focus themselves in our consciousness in these ways. We're not robots. And so we must not think that these are necessarily irrational or fanatically mystical. That's, that's kind of a summary statement of being humbly open to the ways in which the Spirit may lead it may not be identical to what we find there in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or Ephesians 4, but sure sound a lot like God trying to build up his church through the work of the Spirit and in the lives of the saints. He gives bespoke gifts to the trustees for the sake of the church and to the times that he might be high and lifted up. Let's pray. Father, help us to 
think well of what you have given carefully and with gratitude. To think warily, sure, about the ways we can think poorly or misuse or or try to make what you've given us as some sort of substitute for the gift that is in your son. Would you help us to have the courage and the humility to offer what we have in love, not out of fear and not out to prove or to impress, but that you might build up your church through the manifold gifts of the Spirit, some of which don't even find their place in a list, but which are no less dear to you and which are no less effective by the work of your Spirit to make us more like your Son. Thank you for your generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.